The following message was given by Tim Abbott on Sunday, August 21st at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Good morning and, and uh, welcome once again. It is, it is truly a joy to be able uh, to gather together uh, with you to sing to worship, to pray, and to hear uh, God's Word. So I'm glad that you're here. If you are uh, new or visiting, I feel like I've seen a few faces that are new, at least to me. Um, we're so glad that you're here. We take your Sunday morning to um, come together with us. Uh, there, is, there is a tent outside. You probably saw some people getting coffee at it. Um, after the service, that tent is all for you. Uh, we would love to uh, meet you and be able to give you a gift and uh, uh, just let you know more about Redemption Hill. So if you're new, uh, thank you so much for being here. We're, we're thankful to be together uh, as, as God's people. This morning we are starting a three-week series entitled Gospel Hospitality. Uh, hospitality is a word that we are probably all somewhat familiar with, but probably don't have a good idea of what real hospitality is. Uh, some of you might have even just checked out when I said the word hospitality, uh, thinking the next three weeks aren't for me. Um, that is not true. It is for you. So just stick with me for a little while. Uh, hospitality can be a very, very powerful thing. But hospitality in uh, our culture over the last century has changed into something uh, very different than it was intended to be. Uh, it, is, it is really now a buzzword in our country for throwing big parties and running big businesses. It is uh, used more often to describe the hospitality industry than it is to use to describe the church. We often hear hospitality and believe, even as Christians, that it is an optional part of the Christian life. The truth is that hospitality is a biblical practice of utmost importance. You can trace from the very beginning in the Old Testament through the very end of the New Testament a pattern of hospitality uh, that was set by God's people. Um, and that foundation was established by God himself. And this kept moving through the early church. The Roman Emperor Julian, who was uh, famously hated Christians, uh, said this about Christians, not realizing he was complimenting them. He says, they not only feed their own poor, but ours as well. They welcome them into their agape, their love. Their feast and their tables are spread for the poor and needy. The practice is, is common among them, and it is causing a contempt for our gods. God used Christians opening their homes, sharing their goods, inviting people that they didn't know and were needy to eat with them, uh, to draw those people to himself and to bring about a contempt for, for foreign gods. My hope is that Redemption Hill, over the next three weeks, uh, would start to understand what real hospitality is. I, I, my hope is that Redemption Hill would be known for hospitality, that a culture of hospitality that would, would take hold of each of us, and not simply just relegated to something a few of us do. My hope is, is that over the next three weeks, we would see the vital role that hospitality plays in the life of the Christian in the life of the church, and that we here at Redemption Hill will become passionate and joyful about hospitality. But uh, think with me for a moment, um, as we've been talking about it for a couple minutes, your, your mind is thinking, what do you think of when you think of hospitality? What images come into your mind when you hear that word? 
Maybe you're thinking of a, of a restaurant that serves people especially well or a family member or a friend that really, really loves people and has people over a lot. Um, for me, I think of two things uh, when I think of hospitality. First, HGTV. Um, if you watch any HGTV show, home buying or renovating, I think they have to feed this line to people. But every single person on all of their shows at some point in an episode says, I just, we just really want to have a lot of people over to our house. Uh, we just need a big space to have a lot of friends. that We'd love having friends over. Every single one says it exactly the, the same. Um, second, I think of Chick-fil-A. Hopefully we all think of Chick-fil-A. Is... Is there anyone, honestly, that does hospitality better than Chick-fil-A? Somehow, I believe that 16 and 17-year-olds standing out in the scalding hot sun are genuinely excited that I'm there <laughs> to order a chicken sandwich. I don't know how they do it. Um, every other fast food restaurant, when I go in, I feel like I need to apologize for them because clearly I made them mad that I'm, that I'm there. Um, I... I I take the kids to Taco Bell sometimes. Don't, don't judge me. But we, we, we go to Taco Bell sometimes. And every once in a while, after I give them the, the, my order, they have the gall to say to me, my pleasure. And, and I, I want to look at them and say, clearly it wasn't your pleasure. And it's not your pleasure. It's Chick-fil-A's pleasure. That's their words. You need to keep that to yourself. But... Those are the kind of images that come into our minds when we think about hospitality. It is rare when we hear the word hospitality that our minds turn to Christ. We don't often think about what God has done for us. Uh, the truth is that our thoughts and our images of hospitality often fall short of God's definition of hospitality. And it is because we have changed the definition of, of the word to something more suitable in our lives. We, there, there are other words that have replaced hospitality that don't mean God's hospitality. Years ago, uh, my son, who is, it was nine now, when he was two, we took him to the zoo for the first time. And, and taking a two-year-old to the zoo is, is a pretty special experience. I'm pretty sure it's going to be like what when we all get to heaven, it's going to be like. Eyes wide open, big smile on her face. Everything captures your attention for about eight seconds. Um, it's, it's wonderful. There's a monkey. There's a cheetah. There's a fence. It's great. Um, everything seems magical when you're two. And he was so excited to see the animals, but even more than he was excited to see the animals, we had told him that he could feed some of the animals. And so he was, he was just thrilled to think that he could feed the animals. But he was getting his words uh, confused. And so he, he got there all the way there. He kept saying the same thing for about an hour and a half. He kept ro rolling around and he was just screaming out what he meant to say was, I can't wait to feed all the animals. But what he said was, I can't wait to eat all the animals. <laughs> just again and again and again. And every time he said it, he started laughing because he was so excited like some cartoon supervillain. Um, we definitely got some looks that day. Uh, it is, it is, feed and eat aren't really that far apart in our language, but there's a big difference when you're at a zoo. Um, we do this same thing uh, often. We get words that are somewhat related and end up changing the meaning of those words. 
we have taken the more popular definition of hospitality, the, the, the word that the, the world loves, which is much closer to entertaining than it is biblical hospitality. Those two words are closely related, but they have much different implications. It is always dangerous to allow the world, to allow others to define biblical words for us. Uh, we have taken that watered-down version of entertaining, and we've tried then to incorporate that into the church. But that definition falls far short and completely changes what true hospitality, what biblical hospitality really is. If we're honest, the hospitality of Christians often doesn't look that different from the hospitality of those who aren't Christians. And that has left many of us not interested in showing hospitality to others. Now, what Jesus does in the midst of all this, and he does this often, he does it in his word, and he does it with us today, is he gently and graciously resets our wrong definitions. And so what I hope we're able to do over the next few weeks is to reset our insufficient or incorrect definitions of hospitality. I want us to learn what hospitality truly is by seeing the hospitality that God has shown toward us and allow God's hospitality of hospitality to, to transform us, to lay a foundation for our own. The only way that is going to happen is, is if we see all that Christ has done to welcome us into his family. And then we need to humbly receive the hospitality that God has shown to us. So over the next three weeks, we will take a look at the hospitality of Christ, the hospitality of the Christian, and the hospitality of the church. And to do this today, to look at the hospitality of Christ, we're going to look at a passage that doesn't use the words hospitality or welcome once, but it clearly shows us the hospitality of Christ on our behalf. So we're going to let Ephesians 2 be our guide today. We will be reading verses 11 through 21 of Ephesians 2. You can turn there if you grab the Pew Bible. In front of you, it is on pages 976 and 977 in that Bible. This is Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 11. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, uh, we do just thank you so much for your word. We thank you uh, 
that uh, you so graciously and, and gently uh, lead us into your truth. Father, I pray that you would do that today, um, that you would uh, sanctify us, that we, you would take hold of our hearts and lives, that you would transform us, um, first and foremost, by just understanding and receiving and celebrating what you have done for us. Um, and then transform us to be able to go and show that to others. Father, we, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so if we are going to say that our definition of hospitality is insufficient at best, then we are going to need to define what biblical hospitality is. The word hospitality or hospitable is used six times in the New Testament, but the idea is clearly proclaimed from beginning to end of the Bible. The word in the Bible translated hospitality is made up of two words in Greek that you are probably somewhat familiar with. The word hospitality is made up of the words uh, phylos and xenos. Phylos is the beginning of the word Philadelphia, and it means brotherly love. And the word xenos means strangers. It is the start of our word xenophobia, which means the fear of strangers. Literally, hospitality means brotherly love of strangers. And we'll talk about this more next week, but Hospitality also involves what we're told in Romans chapter 15, where we are told to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Be able to be hospitable to others. We have to have first received the hospitality of Jesus. Our hospitality is always a grace-driven hospitality. We love the stranger like our brother and sister, and we welcome our Christian brothers and sisters as Christ has welcomed us. And so for our purposes over the next three weeks... I think a good definition, probably not perfect, of what biblical hospitality is would be showing brotherly love by welcoming strangers and fellow Christians into our homes and our lives for the glory of God. Showing brotherly love by welcoming strangers and fellow Christians into our homes and our lives for the glory of God. It is not natural to love and treat strangers with brotherly love. It is much more natural and common to fear strangers. And when we fear them, it is, it is right to create distance between us and them. Every child naturally goes through a phase that is known as stranger danger. And yet, somehow, in Christ, we are called to move from stranger danger to loving strangers like their family. And that's where this passage from Ephesians becomes a beacon of light for us to see clearly what hospitality is. Uh, this letter written to the Ephesians that we'll reference uh, throughout has been called the most divine composition of man. Uh, the president of Princeton Seminary in the early 20th century, John Mackey, became a Christian simply from reading Ephesians. He said when he read it that everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. The letter, as, as uh, John Stott puts it, abounds in bold and jubilant affirmations about God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. It truly is. It abounds in bold and jubilant affirmations about God. Uh, this is a beautiful passage. In chapter 2, right before this, Paul gives one of the richest and most beautiful descriptions of our salvation, culminating in the words, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast. And then, right after that, Paul immediately draws our attention more specifically to who we were apart from Christ and what Christ did to make us a family. He calls us to remember that we were separated from Christ 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. First, we'll look at these a little bit out of order, but first he says you were a stranger and you were alienated. Hospitality is defined as brotherly or familial love for strangers. Paul reminds us that even for, for, for Christians, even for those who've grown up in the, in the church, we were once strangers, and Christ loved us and welcomed us even though we were strangers. He loved us and welcomed us as his family. As Christians, we so easily forget this. We did not always fit in. We were at one point outside. We hear words like alienated and strangers, and we think that's for someone else, somebody else who doesn't belong yet. They are the strangers, but I, but I think I've always belonged here. And since we so easily forget, Paul calls us to remember. We're told the same thing in the, in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy. They all echo the same words. Leviticus 19 verses 33 and 34 says it this way. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you. When a stranger comes in, treat him like he's your neighbor. And you shall love him as yourself. We are commanded to treat strangers like they're not strangers. You are commanded to love them as yourself. Why? Why would we do this? It's right there in the rest of verse 34. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. In each instance, God reminds us that we were once strangers. If we were going to be able to love others and welcome others into our lives and into our church, then we have to remember that we weren't always a part of this. Somebody loved us. Somebody welcomed us. Paul says you were alienated, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Specifically here in this passage is it is a description of the alienation between Jews and Gentiles. But a little later in Ephesians, Paul says that unbelievers are alienated from the life of God. R.C. Sproul described our alienation this way. He says, humanity's alienation exists on three levels. Man is alienated from God, man is alienated from his fellow man, and man is alienated from himself. All around us, we see division, hatred, hostility. We face this in life. When we're alienated from God, then we are also alienated from others. And then we are also alienated from the people that God designed us to be. So many of us struggle with identity and much of the world is spending their time and effort working hard to change their identity. These things shouldn't be shocking to us. When we are alienated from God, we become alienated even from the people that God designed us to be. There is no identity to be found. Identity is found in Christ alone. That's where we find our confidence. It is in Christ alone that we can be reconciled to our Heavenly Father, experiencing healing in our hearts and minds and be united to others around Him. Apart from Him, we'll be left isolated and excluded. Paul then says the words, you were without hope. I don't know if there are two more terrifying words in the English language. Without hope, there is nothing. All is lost. And Paul calls us to remember that we had no hope. 
I think often I let words like no hope when I read them just roll over me. I'm familiar with them. I've seen them before. So they don't really sink in. I don't really take seriously the charge to remember that I had no hope. That is a grim picture. Movies often paint this picture of hopelessness well. Um, they, they remind us, they show us what hopelessness looks like. Um, there's no one, this is, this is genuine, there's no one more fun to watch movies with than my wife. Um, not because she's my wife, just genuinely. She feels what you're supposed to feel when you're watching a movie. She would make any movie director feel good about themselves um, watching it with her. Uh, her favorite movie is uh, the second Lord of the Rings movie, uh, The Two Towers. And uh, yes, it's very good. And her favorite scene is the 40-minute long battle scene called the Battle at Helm's Deep. And it is, it is awesome. Uh, the battle involves the army of men and elves fighting a much larger army of orcs and a wizard. And I know for some of you, I just lost you with the words elves, orcs, and wizard. Um, but it's so good. Um, the army of orcs outnumber the men 10,000 to less than 1,000. They fight all night in an epic battle. And the army of men are tired, injured. Their fortress has been broken into. And the army of orcs has many more men ready to go. And they, they feel like all hope is lost. There's nothing left that they can hang on to. And then as the dawn is about to break, Gandalf the White, yes, another wizard, shows up on a white horse with reinforcements and they overtake and defeat the evil orc army. And every time we watch it, and we've probably watched it 15 to 20 times, um, Jen, literally at the end of it, jumps out of her seat throws her hands up in the air and yells as if she's there at the battle herself. It's so much fun. In that, in that moment, right before the dawn was about to break and reinforcements came, they seemed to have very, very little hope. But just listen to this. They, they honestly still had some hope. They had the chance to keep fighting. Maybe somehow it was going to happen. The description of you and I here in Ephesians is that we had no hope. There, there wasn't any way that we could make it out. We were dead and we could not make ourselves alive. We were trapped and we could not escape. We had been defeated and there was no hope of victory. There was nothing that we could do to change or improve our situation in the smallest way. Paul begins and ends this quick section after reminding us that we, we had no hope. He reminds us that we were separated from Christ and that we were without God in this world. I'm sure that some of you have probably trusted in Christ since you were a child and, and praise God for that. And it might be easy to say if that's true that I don't, I don't know if I remember, I don't know if I have anything to remember here. I don't know if I remember a time that I was without God. Paul didn't write this only for those who had extreme, dramatic stories in, a, in their adult life for them to remember. He wrote it for all of us to reflect on, to remember, to realize who we would be apart from Christ, taking hold of our hearts and saving us. The truth is that there are no words that will have a deeper impact in the Christian's life, even moving beyond the terrifying no hope 
to be told that we were without God, that we were separated from Christ. That means that we are all alone. That means that no one is for us. That means that there's nothing ahead for us, that everything is without meaning. And Jesus himself tells us what it looks like to be separated from him in the gospel of John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Without Jesus, without God, you can do nothing. And so we are called to remember these things. Why is it so important, though? Why, if we are saved saints now, why would we ever need to remember the past? Why would we need to remember that hopelessness? Why would we need to remember that we were without God? These are things that we don't want to think about. The answer is simple. We are so prone to forget. And when we forget, we tend to drift. We drift towards self-righteousness. We drift towards pride. We begin to trust in ourselves more than God. We drift away from complete thankfulness to God for what he's done. We drift, and most of the time we drift quickly. So we are called to remember because as Christians, our hope is never in how great we are apart from Christ. As Christians, our hope is never in how great we are and how good we are apart from Christ. As Christians, all of our hope, all of our hope is is found in phrases like the beginning of verse 13 of Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus. That's all of our hope. That is cause for celebration. That is real, lasting, everlasting hope. Those words should make our heart rejoice. We need to remember who we are, but praise God, we don't ever stay there. We don't wallow in the swamp of who we were apart from Christ. We remember who we were, and that drives us to praise and thank God for what he's done. Instantaneously, we are given the words of real life, but now in Christ Jesus. We were without hope, but the rest of this chapter in Ephesians 2 shows us now what real hope, what our new hope is. We were separated in the past from Christ, but Christ himself now has drawn near to us. In the past, we were alienated from God's people. Now we are fellow citizens in Israel. In the past, we were strangers. Now we are members of God's family. Once we were without hope, now we are fellow heirs of all that God has to give. Once we were without God in the world, now we are being built into the dwelling place of God. That is real hope. That is everlasting hope. That is better than anything else we could try to find hope in. We are commanded to remember so that we can appreciate fully what God has given us in Jesus Christ. When we remember it, we immediately are reminded to cherish all that we have in Christ. We said in the beginning that it was dangerous to allow the world to change the definition of biblical words. And here's why it's dangerous specifically with hospitality. When we change the meaning of hospitality to simply entertaining, then we change what God has done for us. We change it to something we're more comfortable with. What God has done for us simply can't be described as entertaining. When God welcomes us into his home, he is not entertaining us. He is simply inviting, he isn't simply inviting good people over to have dinner. 
Now, God is welcoming strangers, and he is treating them like family. He is offering the hopeless hope. He sees those without a home and prepares a place for them to be. He sees the hungry and thirsty, and he invites them into a feast. Before we can ever think about what hospitality looks like practically, and we'll spend time there next week, but before we can look at that and before we can look at what it looks like as a church, we have to first know that hospitality is costly. Not just with our money or our time. It is costly because Jesus gave his life to welcome us into his father's house. He sacrificed and gave his life to welcome us into his people. We have to understand that or we will just be entertaining ourselves and our friends for the rest of our lives. But because Jesus has welcomed us in, we now have reason for celebration, and we can welcome others in to that celebration. We have a hope and a confidence that cannot be shaken, so we do not have to fear the stranger. We can begin to truly show hospitality to others. There are three ways as we get close to the end here that I want you to see that Christ brings you near today. The first is here in Ephesians 2, and the other's and other passages, three ways that Christ has shown hospitality to you. The first is that Jesus has brought us near to him. This is what Jesus has done for you and I. Back in Ephesians 2 verse 13, we're told, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And in verse 17, he came. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Jesus came to you. He came close to you and brought you close. There's a wonderful little phrase at the end of Matthew 28. The, the Great Commission is, is widely known where, where Jesus would send his people out to, to, to make disciples, uh, to, to go and proclaim his good news. And right before, right at the start of it, is this magnificent little statement. It simply says, then Jesus came close to them. And, he, and then he gives his great commission. Jesus came close to them. There's no greater comfort than that. Jesus was, was, was God himself. John chapter 1 says he was in the beginning, and, and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And that God came close to us. Later in John 1, we're told he made his dwelling. He made his home among us. He came close to us so that we could be brought near to him. What are the implications of being brought near to, to, to Christ? Verse 19 of Ephesians 2 makes it clear. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You have been brought near. You are no longer strangers. You are no longer alienated, but you are welcome. You belong. You are a member of God's family. That is the hospitality of Christ. You were strangers, but Jesus gave his life. And because of that, you are now a saint and a member of his house. You were alienated from the house of God, and Jesus came to you when you were far off. And now you have been united together with God and with God's people. He has reconciled you completely. So we have been brought near because of Jesus. The second way that Jesus has shown us hospitality is that he has prepared a place for us. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, you can go ahead and turn there. We'll 
Just look at it for a second. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. In this passage, Jesus is going to be crucified the next day. He's going to the cross, and he is talking to his disciples about not being with them in person and trying to build confidence in them for what is coming. And how does he build their confidence? He talks to them about hospitality. Jesus says this. This is John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The God who was in the beginning and created all things, Jesus is going and preparing a place for us. And then he describes that place for us. There's so much to learn about hospitality in just these three sentences. He tells them that God's house is large. Always feels a little odd. I don't know why he would have to tell people that God's house is large. It has many rooms. We won't run out of space. Don't worry. We will have a place for you. You will not be told we're full. We don't have any more room. Jesus came into this world and was born in a barn with animals because there were no guest rooms available. And here, Jesus promises them that there will always be room in my father's house. You won't have the side room. You won't have the stable. You will have a room of honor in my father's house. For many of us, we treat hospitality like something we only do if we need friends. If we already have enough friends in our life, then we don't have to show hospitality anymore. And it we feel like we hang a sign on our lives that says no more room. And while as humans, we certainly have, have limits and can't welcome everyone into our lives, we still need to show hospitality. And we can all be glad that God has not treated us like that. There will be plenty of space in God's house. And then Jesus says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Jesus Christ prepared a place for you. Just let that sink into your soul. What does it mean that he is going to prepare a place? A few verses later in verse 6, we are told, he, Jesus is still speaking. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John Piper, pastor, put it this way. Jesus is saying, I go to prepare a place for you. And as I go, I become the way that you get there. I am the truth that you hold on to to get there. And I am the life, the eternal life that you will enjoy forever when you get there. Not only does he prepare the place, but the end of verse 3 of John 14, we're told, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus does it all. He makes the place. He prepares the place. He comes to us when we're far away. He comes close to us. And he takes us to there so that we can be with him forever. Christ has shown us hospitality by coming close to us, preparing a place for us. And then lastly, Christ has prepared a feast for us. We'll talk more about this passage next week. But in Luke 14, Jesus gives a parable of a great feast. A group of Pharisees have invited them into his house 
And he uses this time to correct their understanding of hospitality. And he uses it as a way to proclaim his work. In verses 13 and 14 of Luke chapter 14, he says this, When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Jesus is, is telling us how to show hospitality, but he is also proclaiming what he has done for us. He has invited in the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, people who cannot repay him and don't have to. When he gives a feast, it is not filled with the rich. It is not filled with the righteous. It is not filled with those who are, have no need of a doctor. It is filled with those who are sick and needy, those who have failed, those who are poor in this world. He's not inviting those that are fine with or without Jesus. He goes and prepares a feast for the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And then he picks up the crippled and lame and carries us to that feast. He takes the hand of the blind and he leads us gently and lovingly to that feast. The reason that we can be hospitable, the reason that we can show hospitality to others is because of the overwhelming hospitality of Jesus. When we get to heaven, there's going to be a feast unlike anything that we've ever been able to imagine. Revelation 19 tells us, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are going to get to enjoy that feast for all eternity. When we consider, when we think in that moment, how did we get here? What do we do to, 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 to make it to this extravagant feast? What do we do to deserve this extravagant feast? Every saint from every nation and every language and every generation will have only one answer. There won't be multiple answers. It is only, I am here because of Jesus alone. It is because Jesus loved me when I was a stranger. It is because he cared for me when I was sick. It is because he gave his life for me when I was needy. It is only because of Jesus that I am here. He gave his life to bring us near. He went and prepared a place for us. He came back and he carried us there. And he welcomes us into eternity in heaven to enjoy a feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and to be with him forever. That is the hospitality that you have been shown. That is the hospitality that we all need to receive. That is the definition, that is the foundation for our hospitality that we show to others. It is so much more than entertaining. In a few minutes, we are going to partake of a meal that Jesus has prepared for us by taking communion together. Uh, if you have never trusted in Christ as your savior, savior, I encourage you to take this time. Consider Jesus. If you have felt isolated and alone, unsure of who you are, Jesus loves you so much and has done so much to welcome you into his family. He wants you to believe, to trust, and to receive his gracious work on your behalf. If you're here and you don't trust in Jesus, I'm so glad that you're here. And I want to encourage you to take this time over the next few minutes to just stay in your seat. As others come forward and partake of this, this meal, I want you to stay in your seat and consider Jesus. 
He has a family and a feast prepared for you that he is inviting you to. So please turn to him. Talk to the person that brought you today. There's a tent outside. Talk to somebody at that tent. They can connect you or talk to you about what it is to trust in Jesus. And for those of us today that are Christians, Christ has prepared a feast for us, a feast to refresh our souls, to be reminded of all that he has done for us. And so every week we take communion together. Every day we need to be reminded of what he has done. And so in a moment you'll be welcomed to come and take this meal. Members of God's family will serve you communion, speak truth into your life, reminding you that the body of Christ was given for you and the blood of Christ was shed for you. And for those that have trusted in Christ, we'll take that bread and dip it into the juice and remember all that he has done, turning away from our sin and turning and trusting in Christ. Let's pray and then we're going to take a couple minutes to reflect and then we'll take communion together. You've been listening to a message by Tim Abbott given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.